Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting November 6, 2015, we consider results of the Turkish elections last weekend and their implications for the future, as analyzed for the World Policy blog by senior fellow Elmira Berasli. We'll also point out top features in the new fall issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, some promising news on the foreign policy front. The weekend meeting between Chinese President Xi and Taiwan's Ma. It's the first ever meeting between the heads of the two countries since China turned to communism in 1949 and the defeated Chinese nationalists fled across the Taiwan Strait. The 20-minute meeting is set against a backdrop of decades' worth of hostility and suspicion. Beijing says the island, though, is nothing more than a province to be unified, if necessary, by force. White House spokesman Josh Ernest tells World Policy that the U.S. welcomes the meeting and is hopeful that it could reduce tensions between Taipei and Beijing. Washington, meantime, remains committed to its one China policy. What does that mean exactly? It means that there is only one China in Washington's view and that it is mainland China. In other words, the People's Republic. The U.S. does not explicitly recognize China's sovereignty over Taiwan, though, nor does it recognize Taiwan as a sovereign country. There'll be a quiz on all this later. Speaking of China, who's the world's most powerful person? No, it's not Xi Jinping, nor is it Barack Obama. It's Russian President Vladimir Putin. At least that's what Forbes magazine thinks. German Chancellor Angela Merkel is second, followed by Obama, Pope Francis, and Xi. And ever heard of the Prosperity Index? The Legatum Institute puts this out once a year, ranking countries by eight different but equally weighted measures, economy, governance, health, personal freedom and education, entrepreneurship, security, and social capital among them. It says the best place in the world to live is Norway. Switzerland, Denmark, New Zealand, and Sweden round out the top five. Perhaps no surprise, the United States ranks number 11. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Cheering supporters of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan took to the streets in Ankara this week as his Justice and Development Party, AKP, defied almost all predictions and polls to win back a parliamentary majority it lost last June. But there was furious disappointment and violence in some Kurdish areas, and international observers declared that deadly terror attacks, pre-election repression of the opposition and independent media, made the snap election neither truly free nor fair. Erdogan's AKP also failed to achieve the supermajority required to single-handedly rewrite the country's constitution and vest far more power in the currently ceremonial presidency itself. But that may well still happen, through parliamentary politicking, popular referendum, 
or simply more of the de facto control Erdogan has increasingly asserted. And though the AKP victory was based largely on promises of stability, many observers feared further domestic polarization, economic lag, and violence involving both Kurdish separatists and followers of the Islamic State, angered by Turkey's more active role in the war against it. The World Policy Institute blog currently features analysis of the election results and their implications by senior fellow Elmira Beyrasli, with Turkish roots and experience in both diplomacy and international economics. The subject of Turkey came up in our earlier conversation about her new book, From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places, and we discussed the election just days ago for this podcast. Elmira Beyrasli, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thanks for having me. Were you as surprised as most analysts by the way Erdogan managed this comeback? I was surprised by certainly the results. All the polls showed that um, the, the snap elections on Sunday would pretty much have the same outcome that the Turkish elections on June 7th did. I have to say, upon reflection, I'm not surprised by how Erdogan managed to um, successfully win back um, a majority and have his AKP party rule as a majority. Erdogan um, definitely appealed to Turkish voters and their fear of instability. There has been a summer of violence in Turkey. In July, there was a, it was a terrible bombing in Surich, which is a border town near Syria, that killed 33 people. Um, in Ankara last month, there was a bombing in the capital city where, where se- several hundred people died. And I think this growing instability did frighten, did frighten a lot of Turks. This renewed war with the PKK was also something that was of great concern, not only for the Turkish public, for, but for also the Kurds. And I think you saw a lot of Kurds flock away from the HDP, the People's Democratic Party, and vote for the AKP, primarily because I think they thought the AKP can better handle a situation and not leave it into the hands of a coalition government, which historically has not, been, has not done very well in Turkey. Beyond the violence and political repression about which the international observers complained, do you suspect that some sort of vote tampering might have confounded the polling? You know, by, I, there was an independent organization, which is um, the Vote and Beyond, which organized um, several thousand Turkish volunteers to oversee the ballots. Oyva Tisi didn't report any didn't report any widespread fraud. The OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation Europe, did express some concern about the period leading up to the elections, where it was one of of tremendous intimidation and violence. You also have to point out that. Um, the AKP doesn't have a hold on the media. And when you look at the airtime that the AKP and President Erdogan had himself during the summer, that that number definitely eclipsed what the opposition was allowed. Um, I think when you're thinking about who's controlling the media and the environment that it was in, I think those were definitely factors that contributed to 
to the um, to the result on Sunday. In terms of irregularities, you know, I have to say I don't think that there were any irregularities at the polls. I think that there was an environment that wasn't entirely fair. Let's uh, look back again more deeply at some of the less conspiratorial factors in the election. Uh, first, what you call uh, the nationalist card. Uh, say more about what that means. Well, interestingly enough, when um, when President Erdogan was leading the AK party and became the prime was the prime minister of Turkey in 2003 he very much ran a campaign on inclusion he talked about human rights he talked about minority rights he talked about civil rights and really bringing Turkey into much more of a western fold and and having a spirit of unity and in a in a different tone in Turkey over the past several years he's turned his back on on that particular position where he has lashed out at the Kurds. He has said very negative things about women. He has catered to a very narrow, conservative, very religious constituency in the Anatolian heartland where a very anti-Western and pro-Turkish message resonates. You saw a lot of voters, national um, voters who did vote for the Nationalist Action Party, the MHP, switch their votes from June to, um, on, on Sunday. They voted for the AKP, I think primarily because they thought it would be better to have the AKP, who has been ruling as a single party, represent their views and the positions that Erdogan taken is something that they believe represents um, and it represents the right direction that Turkey's going in. Let's talk more about the fear factor. Uh, to what degree did Erdogan's renewed operations against Kurdish separatists, the KPP, and long-delayed aid to the fight against ISIS inevitably, maybe knowingly, provoke counterattacks, including that double suicide bombing in Ankara, uh, that underscored his stress on stability? I think that played a, I think it played a huge role. I think that, you know... I think Turkey has struggled with the Kurdish issue for a very long time. Um, Erdogan was the first Turkish leader to actually reach out to the Kurds to extend the Kurds' rights, rights to speak their language, on to have uh, Kurdish broadcast on television and on the radio for Kurdish to be taught in in, in schools. And so he took a lot of steps that a lot of previous Turkish leaders had not. He also sat down with the PKK for peace negotiations that would finally end this, this separatist war that, that the Turks and Kurds have, have been involved in. Reigniting this, this battle with the Kurds, particularly the terrorist organization, the PKK, played not only into the nationalist card, but it put the Kurds in a situation where you know, they're once again victims in a country where they're economically isolated, they have a lot of disadvantages, and they're really looking to just have some stability in their lives. And so when it came down to the choice of what direction they would like their lives to go in, I think they chose stability. Do you think, though, to some degree, Erdogan really knew he was provoking violence by, by his turnabout on the Kurds and indeed finally uh, joining more forcefully the fight against ISIS? I mean, he had to know that it was not going to come cost free. Neither would come cost free. You know, I, I think Erdogan is, is walking a very precarious tightrope. Um, you know, certainly his, his position against Assad in Syria 
his his long held position that Assad must go, and he has been very hands off on on ISIS up until July when when Ankara gave the green light to the United States to launch airstrikes from Injerlik base against ISIS. Um, up until then, you know, Erdogan has taken a very firm line on that. I think the position with the Kurds was also related to that because the United States was siding with the Syrian Kurds, the YPG, against ISIS. And I think there was a fear within with, within the AKP government that an emboldened, uh, an emboldened um, Kurdish movement in the southeast would be very dangerous ultimately for, for the AKP and in, in the direction that they want to take the country in. How did Erdogan tie the KPP to the pro-Kurdish but peaceful, uh, the peaceful People's Democratic Party, the HDP? Uh, how did that affect the HDP support that in June won its first seats in Parliament? I, I, you know, the HDP. I mean, the HDP came in with 13% in June, which um, which I think surprised a lot of people. Um, um, pleasantly so. I think Demirtas de- adopted the Erdogan message in 2002 and talked who, about. Who was that? Who, explain who that is. Sorry, um, Selahattin Demirtas is the head of the People's Democratic Party, the HDP, and he, interestingly enough, in prior to the June elections, adopted a very um, inclusive message, a message that Erdogan and the AKP had pushed forward in 2002, talking about minority rights and human rights. Um, it was a message that resonated not only with the Kurds, but I think it was a lot of liberals in Turkey. Um, when you look at the results on Sunday, the HDP still did very well. Yes, they, they lost about a million votes, but they still came in and they passed the 10% threshold that is required by, by law in order for a political party to actually get into the Grand National Assembly. And that's pretty significant. That has never happened in, in Turkish elections before. And so, yes, while they did lose a million votes, I think the significance of them passing that 10% threshold and having representation in, in the Grand National Assembly is something to really pay attention to. With the election and its fear factors history, uh, do you see any chance uh, for uh, a pullback from operations against ISIS to limit counterstrikes, uh, maybe an eventual deal with Kurds for more autonomy, although we see that there has been uh, renewed attacks on the uh, KPP positions just now? Um, I, I don't think we're going to see much of a change in foreign policy. Um, you know, I, I, I think you know relations with Washington and Ankara have not have not been ideal, um, but both Turkey and the United States are members of NATO, and they do have a have a united commitment to fighting terrorism and fighting ISIS. Now, the degree to which each of them are doing that, I think, differs, but I think ultimately they are on the same side. Um, when it comes to the Kurdish issue, I think that the United States and Washington does does um, identify the PKK as a terrorist organization and is very well aware of Ankara's concerns about these the terrorists and the separatist ten, um, goals that they want for Turkey. Um, I think ultimately Ankara and Washington will continue to work together and achieve these mutual goals. I don't think that they, I, I don't think we're going to see much of a difference on that. That being said, I think that 
with this um, landslide election that the AKP won, you all, I think Erdogan has a lot more cards in his hands. And I think you're going to see him a lot more emboldened and push for things that he previously did, which is in particular a no-fly zone in northern Syria, which would then um, give, give the Turkish government a little bit of relief in terms of not only the Kurdish fighters in the southeast, but also the flow of refugees that are coming into Turkey. You have to remember... Turkey has absorbed 2.2 million refugees from Syria, and that's been a huge economic burden on Turkey. Um, it's also been a security burden, and I think the Turks would like a no-fly zone in, in northern Syria. Whether they get, they get that is doubtful, but I think it's something that Erdogan might push for. How are those security issues and Erdogan's increasingly Islamic orientation viewed by the secular Turkish military, which once ran the country? You know, I, I actually have to quibble with the categorization of, of Erdogan and his Islamic tendencies. Um, yes, I think Erdogan is, is a, a, you know, an observant Muslim, but I actually don't think he is, is kind of this radical who wants to turn Turkey into an Islamic state. I think his, his, what he wants to do with Islam is he's, I think, using it much more of, as, a, as a class issue. Um, he, is very, he has always identified himself and called himself a black Turk, somebody who's from the underclass, who's ne- who has been underrepresented, who the Turkish elites have long ignored. And he has always waged a very anti-establishment campaign. It's a campaign message that has resonated with a lot of people in Turkey who feel that they have long been neglected by Turkey's elite and Turkey's upper classes. And... I think his use of religion is much more about the underclass coming coming up in the ranks and and gaining economically, but then also gaining socially and politically. But let me ask again about the military. I mean, uh, when I visited Turkey, uh, they were very much present. You couldn't drive more than a mile without seeing a platoon of troops marching along the highway. The Erdogan government over the past 13 years is, um, has done quite a job in removing military presence in Turkish political life. There have been a number of court cases that have brought charges against the military um, over the past several years. Um, many people in the military, there's been a huge reshuffling, and Erdogan has put into position um, senior people that are much more sympathetic or at least more amenable to the AKP's positions. I think also Turkey's changed. The military was, played a very dominant role in Turkey in the 20th century when Turkey was a very much an economic backwater. Turkey's economy had not developed. The majority of the country was poor. Today's Turkey is very different. Most people in Turkey are in the middle class. Turkey is in the G20 Literacy rates um, hover above 95 percent, and and the the country is much more connected and globalized. Fifty percent of the country is online. Mobile phone penetration is more than 75 percent. I think Turks are much more part of the globalized world. And as a result, I think that the military, not only as a result of Erdogan's policies, has taken a back seat, but I think that the dynamics of, of Turkish social and political life have changed to that. I don't think you're going to see the military intervening as they did in the 20th century. Erdogan clearly keeps his goal of rewriting the Constitution and creating a far more powerful presidency for himself. How do you think he can still achieve it, and what would it mean for governance in Turkey? 
Well, certainly, um, you know, the, the, the AKP government wasted no time in making announcements that one of their priorities will be uh, changing the Constitution and thinking about a referendum. I think certainly they're laying the groundwork for that, talking about putting, allowing the Turkish people to uh, vote on, on whether the Constitution should be changed. Um, you know, I think that that's very dangerous. Turkey's institutions are very weak. Um, it doesn't have... I mean, it doesn't have very strong rule of law. You've seen that over the past several years with the way that Erdogan has abused the courts, the way that he has gone in and he's completely revamped the police, the, um, the police force in Turkey. He, um, he, you know, he rules with a heavy hand. And one of the reasons that he does do that is because Turkey's institutions are very weak. And that's with the parliamentary system. Under an, an executive system where the president um, is ultimately the one who makes all of the laws. There'll be even fewer checks and balances. And with with a weak rule of law, that's very dangerous in a country that, that really does claim to be a democracy. And how will Erdogan's increasingly authoritarian ways, uh, attacks on the opposition, the media, uh, affect Turkey's prospects of joining the EU, which was something that he actually uh, spoke for when he first came on the scene. Absolutely. Erdogan, I think like all Turkish leaders before him in 2002 and 2003, talked about EU membership. Turkey had not joined the, um, the the group of 20 largest economies in the world yet. It was still on its way. It was still working itself out of the 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 bad economic situation that it had it had seen throughout the 20th century. Um, and so the EU was definitely a goal. I think you've seen over the past 13 years Turkey gain economically. Um, its entrepreneurial scene has really exploded. You see entrepreneurs not only in Istanbul but throughout the heartland. More people have moved into the middle class in Turkey over the past 13 years than ever before. Turkey's a much stronger place than it has been, and it's a much more confident place. And in many ways, it's great that they did that without the EU. Um, I don't think that there's a lot of popularity among the Turkish people for membership in the EU, especially as the EU undergoes its own problems. We've seen problems that Greece has had. Now the United Kingdom is talking about pulling out. I think that Turkey does not want to have to have to be a part of a bureaucracy that's only going to complicate its own politics any further. Some commentators say Erdogan's excesses will scare off needed outside investment. How do you see the vote impacting Turkey's overall economy, which Erdogan initially helped to boost? Um, yes, that's that's the irony. Um, it's been the sound management of the AKP government that has allowed Turkey to become such an emerging market darling. Turkey has, you know, boomed over the past 13 years. Many finance, financiers, banks, financial hubs, and investors have made Istanbul a headquarters. You've seen a lot of technology giants. Um, established presence in Turkey, Microsoft, Google, Twitter, they all, um, they all have headquarters in Turkey. Um, and in the entrepreneurial scene, which is something that I follow very closely, is, is booming. You see a number not only of venture capital investors and private equity investors from abroad coming to Turkey, but you're seeing Turks themselves start their own venture capital funds, which is a tremendous development. The only trouble is that with 
Erdogan growing increasingly authoritarian and his mercurial tendencies to shut down media houses and clamp free speech is not something that investors are likely to see kindly. I think investors um, want to put their money in places where it's the rule of not rule of law and not one individual who determines daily life. You've talked about pockets of hope, including uh, promising entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship, especially in technology and communications, uh, the growth of the middle class. Uh, ironically, the same geographic factors that put Turkey so close to the turmoil in Syria, Iraq, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could also be an asset, you write. I think it is an asset. I think that if 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 there is one reason to to believe in Turkey and not bet against it, um, it is because you do have this vibrant entrepreneurial scene. Young men and women who are starting businesses and attracting investments from abroad, um, entrepreneurs from different places coming in and making Istanbul their headquarters because not only of its geographic location, but because of the tremendous opportunities that that Turkey. Um, that puts forth to entrepreneurs. Um, I think that that in and of itself, I think when you, when you do have a lot of people um, building businesses and experimenting, I think that there's a lot of exciting things going on there, and that's something that the government can't ignore. Entrepreneurship certainly is one of the drivers of growth here in the United States, and if it's going to be in Turkey, it's something that Erdogan you know, Erdogan's going to have to acknowledge, and he's not going to be able to bulldoze his policies and, and ignore that specific constituency. In terms of the middle class, I think the middle class is the one group, unlike the, the very rich or the very poor, that does make demands on government. You saw um, in 2013 the middle class come out in Turkey during the Gezi Park protests. In that same year, you saw middle-class people in Brazil come out and protest the government's um, attempt to raise uh, uh, transportation fees. I think the middle class wants accountability from, from their leaders. I think that they want um, responsible leadership. I think they want good, good services and delivered to the public, and they just want to be able to trust the government. And I think where you do have a strong middle class, not only do you have vibrant startup growth and entrepreneurial activity, I think you do have accountability to the government. So, reason for hope. Elmira Bayrosley, thank you. Thank you so much, David. World Policy Institute senior fellow Elmira Bayrosley analyzed Turkey's election for the World Policy blog. Her new book is From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places. Featured in the new Fall 2015 Food Fight issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on smaller, smarter micro-farming, on proposals for preventing today's massive food waste and loss, and on cuisine controversy and nationalism. And listen next week when our podcast will feature a preview of the International Climate Change Conference upcoming in Paris. As highlighted in WPJ editor emeritus David Andelman's conversation, with Ségolène Royal, France's Minister of Ecology, Sustainable Development and Energy, under the headline Feeding the World. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. New editor, Christopher Shea, welcome. Managing editor, Yaffa Frederick. Online news editor and podcast producer, Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>